All right, the rest of us, we're gonna be continuing in our study of the book of Exodus. This is called The Great Escape, all right? Um, we have been working our way through a lot of details looking at the tabernacle. Um, last week in our message, Clothed in Righteousness, God's instructions to Moses on top of Mount Sinai continued. The Lord moved from the tabernacle structure to the men who would serve as priests in his tabernacle and gave instructions on how they would be dressed. And looking at the specific materials and colors to be used, we were able to see that these men were intended to be unique among the people. They were supposed to stand out as symbols of godliness. Our focus was primarily on the high priest, which is a picture of Jesus Christ, um, but it's also a representative, we're going to see also represented for the people before God. This morning, the Lord will continue his instructions for the priest's garments as we move from the ephod, which is the outer robe, uh, and the girdle, which is like the belt that goes around here, the foundational part of the, of the garment. And this week, we'll move on to a very significant part of the high priest's clothing, which is called the breastplate. The breastplate's called the breastplate of judgment. And let's pray with this message, clothed in righteousness. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, for today. Thank you for this opportunity you've given us, Lord, to be in your house. And thank you for this message, Lord. I know that uh, throughout the week you have spoken to me as I have read and prayed and studied, God. I know you've spoken to me, but Lord, I now pray and ask that you would speak through me, that the words that I would share, Lord, not be the ones that I would choose, that the very words that you'll place in my mind and on my tongue be the ones that you would direct me to. God, thank you for the word. Thank you for the strength of the Bible. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to share it. And Lord, I pray, God, that you speak to us now. Help us to have ears to hear. Lord, not just to be hearers, but to be doers of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So last week, as we looked at Aaron, right, Aaron was selected along with his sons to serve as priests in the tabernacle. The tabernacle, the word tabernacle means to dwell with. And this is a place where men are going to meet with God. Now, Aaron was set aside as the high priest in that high priest role. And we looked at his whole role. One of the things that we talked about last week is the fact that he would bear the sins of the people. There were stones that were upon his, the outfit that he would wear on his ephod. And these stones represented the people as it listed the names of the children of Israel. And he would carry sacrifices before God in the most holy place. In, uh, as a representation of them. So he started the instructions here about how we would be dressed. We see now that he's going to talk about the materials and the design that God has intended for them. Each part of the priest's clothing is going to be picturing not only God himself, but also what God did, the atoning work of Christ on the cross. So as we look deeper into this, let's pay attention to the fact that God is trying to show us something deeper than just talking about clothing. These things are sometimes hard to study, so bear with me as we go through it. Sometimes you're like, ah, oh, you know, materials and things like that. But there's some really cool pictures in it if you'll just take the time to pay attention, all right? So Exodus 28, verses 15 through 30. Exodus 28, 15. And it says, And thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment with cunning work after the work of the ephod. Thou shalt make it of gold, of blue, and of purple, and of scarlet, and fine twine linen. Again, we see the same materials that were used inside of the tabernacle, representing the veil, representing the entries. And we see that same thing mimicked in the outfit that he's wearing in the ephod. But now again, in the breastplate, this breastplate is going to be woven, finely woven in twine uh, materials. It's going to be making a, 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 a fabric breastplate that we're going to see. It's going to be added to that. Now, remember the golden chains that we talked about last time. The ephod, on, on the ephod, there were the stones that were on the shoulders. And we talked about gold chains. They were made of pure gold. And it's interesting, those gold stones or those gold ones, because you see, they will attach to the breastplate. The reason why those are attached there is they're eventually going to attach here. Bearing the burden here on the shoulders, and they're also going to see that 
he's going to be bearing the burden of the people upon his chest, and those things are connected, and the gold represents righteousness. So this was the atonement, right, for sin to satisfy the judgment of God. It was a picture of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore our sins upon himself before God on the cross. In doing so, he saved us from judgment. Because understand, we're all sinners. We're born sinners. You and I, you know what? We're not born these wonderful, glorious people. You know, we're born, and we, we talk about it many, many times. We give the example of small children. You don't have to teach children to lie. By nature, they will lie, right? They're not honest by nature. They're not going to lovingly share a lollipop between two children. There'll be a black eye at the end of it, and somebody's got lollipop in their hair, right? They're like battling it out. Because they're not going to be like, oh, mm, lick for you, no, lick for you. No, 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 you have it. No, no, you take it. No, they're like, give it to me, mine, mine, mine. They're battling it out, right? So this nature, this natural tendency to sin, unfortunately, is what divides us from God. It's what separates us from God. And so Jesus, when he went to the cross, paid for that sin. So it makes sense that the two elements that would be connecting these two aspects of judgment would be the pure gold chains, right? Representing the godliness and righteousness. Verse 16 says this, For square it shall be, it shall, it, shall be, be, it shall be being doubled. A span shall be the length thereof, and a span shall be the breadth thereof. When you see the word span in the Bible, the word span means this distance right here. It's kind of like in Hawaii. Hang loose, dude, right? That hang loose, that's about eight inches, and that's what they considered a span. So when they were measuring it, you're looking at about an eight-inch square, but also understand that it says that it's doubled, meaning that it would have been made 16 inches here, and it's folded back upon itself, and we'll understand why that is in a few minutes. So we've got this eight by eight square, and there's this pouch that's inside. So obviously we're gonna see that this pouch, this thing is designed to carry something. Verse number 17. And thou shalt set in it sets of settings of stones, even four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and a carbuncle. This shall be the first row. So we're gonna see 12 stones laid out. They're gonna be in lines of three going down in four different groups, okay? So we look at those first First, first several stones. So the first stone, the Bible says, is to be a, a sardius. A sardius is a deep red stone. And on a side note, and this is interesting because the word sardius ties to, there's a church in the, in the book of Revelation. When you go there, you'll see that there's the book, the Sardis, the church of Sardis. And the church of, Sar, church of Sardis, and interestingly enough, that Sardis in the book of Revelation, the word Sardis means red ones. And it's talking about a time period that actually spans between 1517 to 1648, where you'll see the seven different names of the churches, and they represent different dispensations or different time periods of the church's existence. And what we find is between 1517 and 1648, that was when the Reformation was taking place. And the church was being persecuted on this planet, and millions of people were killed. How interesting that Sardis is the name of that, and it means red ones, and this stone is a Sardius a red stone, but that's a message for another time. The second stone is to be a topaz, which is traditionally a blue-colored gem that would have some yellow flecks in it. Some of these things are, you know, understand these colors are inconsistent because they're stones, but these are just to give them a general idea of what they're gonna look like. The third stone is a carbuncle, which is a rich red ruby. Now, outside of the diamond, this is one of the hardest stones, hardest gemstones that exists. Verse 18 says this, and the second row shall be an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. So the first, first, fourth stone is an emerald, okay? That right there shows up, we know, most of us know what an emerald looks like, it's a rich, green stone, right? It's got a translucence to it. Then we'll get the fifth stone, which is a sapphire. Sapphire is a deep blue. Many times you'll find that in the scriptures, it'll be talking about, anytime God's kind of describing ice and things of that nature, he will, they'll say that it had appearance of a sapphire, a deep, deep blue. The sixth stone is to be a diamond. Most of us know what a diamond looks like. If it's flawless, guess what? It is 
perfectly clear and really shiny and pretty. And your wife wants one for sure. Verse 19. And the one you have is never good enough. No, I'm just saying, that's not true. <laughs> In the third row, a ligure, an agate, and an amethyst. So the seventh stone is to be a ligure. This is believed to be what's called modern-day amber, okay, which is going to have kind of a deep golden color to it. The eighth stone is to be an agate, which would be uh, agates run either gray or black or brown. They're kind of a dark, opaque stone. The ninth stone is to be an amethyst, which is a rich purple gemstone. In the fourth row, a beryl and a onyx and a jasper. They shall be in gold in their enclosings. So we see here the tenth stone is to be a beryl. Beryl is uh, a soft, golden-toned stone. The eleventh stone is to be an onyx, and that is an opaque black stone. It a lot of times has white bands kind of running through it. And then the twelfth stone is to be a jasper, which is a clear stone, very similar to what a diamond would look like. And interestingly enough, we notice that these are all supposed to be in a setting of gold. Okay? We've seen this again and again and again. The said the gold is godliness. It's, it's deity. So we find that these stones are supposed to be set. They're supposed to be held in place by righteousness, by godliness, by deity, right? They have this foundation. Also, what's going to hold them to the breastplate? That stone is going to be mounted in the gold, and they're going to stitch it through it to hold it to it. So that gold is implement is very important for it being secured and anchored to the breastplate. Remember that the gold is representative of deity. And when we think about the stone, that represents humanity, right? We're made from the dust of the earth. When a dust is highly compressed and it gets compressed, what does it turn into eventually? A stone, right? So you and I, the picture of us is in the rock, and the picture of God is in the gold. Verse 21, And the stone shall be with the names of the children of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, every one with his name shall, be, shall they be according to the twelve tribes. So each stone is going to represent one of the tribes, and each one of the stones is going to have an inscription. It's going to be engraved with that name. So when you look at the breastplate, you would immediately see the color, and you would immediately see it related to one of the twelve tribes. Now, as Israel... Uh, who used to be named Jacob, when Jacob had his sons back in Genesis 49. In 49, he actually goes through and he talks to them and he actually sits down and he basically gives out blessings and he kind of gives out judgments against them as he talks to his 12 sons. And what's interesting about that in Genesis 49, and if you take it and you consider the fact that that's a picture of the judgment seat of Christ. And when you see as he is talking to them and he's relaying to them what they're going to receive, He's, he's talking about what they've done with the life they've been given. And it's interesting enough, when you read that book in Genesis, and if you relay it to 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and 11, you see that it's a picture of the judgment seat of Christ, which is really amazing. So we're witnessing here is God has taken the Israelites. Here they are coming in. As they come on the stones on the shoulders, they're coming in as a group, okay? So here he is bearing the sins of the people upon the shoulders. The high priest is when he walks in and out of the uh, Holy of Holies. But then on the breastplate, it becomes more individual. So we go from a group, the body, to now individual accountability. And what it is, it's a picture of us having accountability to God as a body of believers, as a church. But guess what? Also, we have individual accountability before God. Each of us will stand before him on our own merit. Romans 14, verses 10 through 12 says this, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow, and, to, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. I don't give account for you. You don't give account for me. And if I, man, if I drop the ball, guess what? I'm accountable for it. 
If we do something good, praise the Lord, man. God's going to reward us for that. But at the same time, we are going to stand accountable for the things that we choose in this body to do. It's not about our sin. It's about the life that we have lived as believers. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I am so thankful <laughs> that the Lord Jesus Christ loved me enough that I went from being someone who was religiously clueless, having no idea who God was, raised in a, a home where Santa Claus was the only thing we talked about at Christmas time, where the Easter was only about Easter bunnies and about getting a basket. We had no clue about anything having to do with God. And coming out of that and having no understanding of who he is to now have the realization, the fact that God loved me in my lost condition, even though I would take his name in vain. I would curse him. I would, make, I would point my fist in the air and shake, yelling at God when I was a kid, not knowing anything about who he was. Ignorant, ignorant, ignorant. And instead of judging me in my ignorance, God said, you know what? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's looking at me, he's going, David, you know what? As dumb as he is and as the ridiculous things that he does, I see him for who he can become one day. And that took 34 years of me living in the world, being a complete idiot, before God was like, look, now, you know what? Pay attention to who I am. Let me reveal myself to you. And praise God I listen, because you know what? There's a lot of people in this world that will not listen. God's calling out to their hearts right now. We've tried to talk to them. There's some people that we've maybe shared the gospel with, we've talked to, and they have stood in rebellion against God. But guess what? It's the nature of humanity to be rebellious. It's the nature of us to stay in opposition to God. Because, you know, we think that we're going to, by submitting ourselves to God, that we're going to give up all of our freedoms. But we don't realize the things that we think we're free, these things of the world, they're the very things that hold us in bondage. We're in bondage to the things of this world, trying to fulfill our lusts and our flesh. But when we give those things up, God says, you know what? Let me show you what real freedom is. Amen. And buddy, let me tell you what, as a testament of that, man, God can give you a life that's way better than you ever dreamed possible. But it all comes down to surrender. Now, it says according to, right? It says in that, in that, in that scripture we just read, it said according to. It was talking about the names. So what we do is we're going to take that and we're going to assume that basically means what it says on the stones on the shoulders, which means they're going to be in descending order from the oldest to the youngest is what it appears to be saying. So if we take these stones and we relate them to the name that should be on that stone, the Sardius would have the name Reuben on it. This was the firstborn of, of Jacob. Now, Reuben's name means behold a son. Topaz would have the name Simeon written on it. Simeon, his name means obedient. Carbuncle would have the name Levi written upon it, and it was his name means joined. The emerald would have the name Judah. Judah means praise. Sapphire would have Dan written on it. That name means judge. Okay? The diamond would have Naphtali written on it. His name means struggle or strife. The ligure would have Gad. His name means fortune. The agate would have Asher. His name means happy. The amethyst would have Issachar, which his name means reward. The beryl would have Zebulun. His name means to dwell. The onyx is, would have Joseph written on it. That means to add. And then Jasper would have Benjamin written on it, and it means the son of the right hand. So we look at these names, Reuben meaning behold a son, Simeon obedient, Levi joined, Judah praised, Dan judged, Naphtali struggled to strife, Gad fortune, Asher happy, Issachar reward, Zebulun to dwell, Joseph to add, Benjamin son of thy right hand. Now as I read this list, and I mean I might be crazy, but you know what, as I looked at this and I prayed over it, it started to kind of show something to me that I thought was kind of interesting. And I'm going to show it to you. And if y'all think I'm crazy, well, just think I'm crazy. That's just the way it is. But bear with me as we go through it. I might be crazy. That's for sure. All right. But if we take these stones and we look at them in the order that they are, taking the first stone, right, it says, behold a son, right? 
Now there was a special son born. Isaiah 9, 6 is this. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. A special son came to the earth. And guess what? He was obedient. He was obedient. Philippians 2, 8 says this. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And guess what? At his death, he was joined with his father. What did he say in John 10, 30? I am my father are one. John 20, 17 says this. Jesus saith unto her, touch me not, for I am not ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. He then ascended up to his father in heaven, who is worthy of praise. Revelations 5.12 says this, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And guess what? There is coming a day. And we sang about it in our song, right? There is coming a day when believers, guess what? We're going to be called up out of here. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 references that aspect. That's the, that's the, the, the rapture. We're going to stand before God. And guess what he will do? He will judge. He will judge. Dan's name means judge. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. This judgment is for believers. This is not a judgment of sin. This is judgment for the life that we have lived for God. And the earth, guess what, and all of its inhabitants, guess what, they're going to face a judgment as well. You go from Revelation chapter number 6 all the way to Revelation chapter number 20, and you're going to see a tribulation period where this world is going to be dealing with unbelievable struggle and strife, naphtali. But there will be a faithful few. And guess what they're going to do? They're going to endure unto the end. And guess that they'll receive their fortune. Matthew 24, 13 says, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. The reward, the reward. And these will be Asher, the word happy, and they will happily stand before the Lord in glory and receive their rewards, Issachar, from Almighty God, being finally added or finally, finally able to dwell, to dwell with him, added to the chorus in heaven that's singing God's praises. And all they will be looking into the loving eyes, right? When there they stand before him at the son of the right hand, Benjamin. It's kind of cool, isn't it? It tells a story, doesn't it? It tells a story, and guess what it points to? The theme of the Bible. The theme of the Bible, which is the second coming of Christ. So when we look at this breastplate, the breastplate, guess what? It's yelling the same thing. It's telling a story, just like we keep hearing again and again and again. And you can find that throughout the entire book. When you look in the Bible and you find it, it says, in that day, or on that day, or in the Lord's day, every one of those, every one of those is pointing to the second coming of Christ. And you can find it throughout the Bible. Every time you see it, that's what it's pointing to. Now, maybe I'm crazy, but it is what it is. Verse number 22. And thou shalt make upon the breastplate chains at the ends of wreathen work of pure gold. Again, make sure it qualifies pure gold. That pure gold representing righteousness, godliness, holiness. Verse 23. And thou shalt make upon the breastplate two rings of gold. And thou shalt put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. Okay, so we think about this, these rings, when we talked about this before, the rings represent eternity, 
Okay? These are gold rings, representative of eternity. And it talks about the fact that these are going to be placed upon the corners. Okay? And the connection to eternity is going to be the righteousness, holiness, godliness. Amen. Verse 24. And thou shalt put the two wreathen chains of gold in the two rings which are on the ends of the breastplate. And I have somebody made a, a version of it. I found this online. I don't know if that's anything it would look like. But anyway, this at least does have the two rings that are going to be in the corners. You can see the gold chains attaching them up there to where the onyx stones were. And they're also going to be down below some other stones we're going to look at. So these are in the upper corners. Verse 25 says, And the other ends of the two wreathen chains thou shalt fasten in the two ouches that put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod before it. So the chains are attaching the onyx here, hooked to the breastplate. What this would do would unify the garment. Those shoulder pieces which stood independent, now are going to be unified with this judgment here. So we see the judgment for God, God upon the shoulders, and now the judgment upon the chest. Verse 26, And thou shalt make two rings of gold, and thou shalt put them upon the two ends of the breastplate and the border thereof, which is on the side of the ephod, inward. This is going to be the bottom corners of the image. If you look back on that image, I think I'll back up. Maybe... There you go. Well, you can barely see them. But there's, little, there's rings at the bottom corners as well. So this is going to be right about where the ribs are, right here. So you have the, the ephod that they're wearing, and they're going to have that, that girdle that wraps around this way. And right above the girdle, they're going to have those rings, and those rings are actually going to be sewn into the ephod. Um, and they shall bind the breastplate by the rings thereof unto the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, that it may be, a, may, that it may be above the curious girdle of the ephod, and that the breastplate be not loosed from the ephod. Okay, so what we see here, what secures the breastplate is blue lace. What's interesting about the color blue, it represents the healing power of God. So what secures it, see what it says? It secures it to the, to the, the linen. Well, guess what? The linen is a picture of humanity, right? This is the, the, the human part. And what secures it, this, this judgment see or this judgment, uh, uh, or the, the eternity rings, what secures them to the ephod is this blue ribbon, the healing power of God. Titus 3, 5, and 7 says this, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on, on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Right? So the only access to eternal life is through the healing power that's displayed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Again, what you've got to realize is the fact that when we look at these garments, instead of just judging them for an outfit, you go, oh, that's nice. Good color combination. Oh, I like how it fits. God's saying, look, it's not about that. He's so specific in the design because he's teaching us something that's more that's there. These mysteries of the scriptures, guess what? They're in there. God wants us to understand them. We see again and again, if you reference scripture to scripture, you can prove these things and see where they come from. Verse 29, it says this, And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment, notice this phrase right here, upon his heart, when he goeth in unto the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. Verse 30, And thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment, the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goeth in before the Lord. And Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. Notice that Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart. Now, you see those two things that are listed in there, the Urim and the Thummim, okay? The Urim and the Thummim. To be honest with you, we're really not sure what they are. I, you, 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 can, you can look and look and look and look and look. We find reference to them being used. 
So we understand what they're for. There's a purpose to them, which is to help decipher or understand kind of what God's will is, okay? I kind of proved that to you. I threw it. There's, there's a several scriptures to use, but I just put one in here in 1 Samuel 28, 6. What happens here is King Saul is kind of going through a lot of stuff, and he's really, he's just kind of searching, and he's got distance from God. What's happening is God has stepped away because Saul is wrong with him. He's not in fellowship with God. And what happens is, here it says, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, here he's seeking God through the prophets, he's seeking God in prayer, he's seeking God through every way he possibly can, and the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. So we understand it's something about discerning the will of God, but we don't know exactly what it is. But what we do know in this scripture is the fact that God makes a very specific and distinct point about Aaron's heart. You notice that? In those two verses, it shows up three different times. He says this is for his heart, to cover his heart, to cover his heart, right? And it's reason being, right? We understand the symbolic burden that, that was being carried by the, by the priest as he went into the Holy of Holies. When he carries, a burden is carried upon the shoulders, right? If you're going to carry a backpack, you don't put it on your chest and walk like this and carry the backpack. No, you put it on your shoulders and the weight is here. So the burden of the sin of the people is placed upon the high priest's shoulders and he carries that burden before the people, before God. But then we see here is this breastplate of judgment is now upon his heart, right? So he's not just supposed to do what he does as a worker or as a servant to the people. He's supposed to care. He's supposed to be focused upon the fact that why is he doing it? Not just that he has a duty to do it, but the fact that what is the purpose? The people, the people of God are supposed to be upon the heart of man. God looks at us, man, when he's on the cross. His heart is what keeps him there. The heart of our names, man. Upon his heart. God knows who we are. If you're here today and you say, you know, I don't know God, guess what? I don't, it doesn't matter if you know him because he knows you. Amen. He loves you right where you are. At 34 years old, in the, wearing a wife beater t-shirt and a pair of painting shorts, sitting in my living room with my wife on an old dirty couch that I gave Eric. <laughs> Someone shared the truth of God's word, man. And we went from sitting on the couch with my arms crossed like this, going, you know what? I'm just here to judge you, Mr. Bible guy. Tell me your stuff. Convince me, salesman. And as he talked and he opened up the word, it wasn't his words that spoke to me. It was that book. And the Spirit of God came down on me, man, and we slid off the couch on our knees. And I went on my knees lost, and I stood up saved, not because I was a better person, but because I simply surrendered to a God who loved me Amen. right where I was. Amen. And see, that's it. Does so under, what he's saying is, look, the priest needs to have the same heart that God had, the same desire to do what he does because he loves, because he loves. The breastplate will again carry the people before the Lord. Only this time, instead of laboring for the people, he will love the people because they're over his heart. His duty is to serve, right? His duty is to serve, but he must truly care about the people in whom he is serving. And the problem with humanity is because we're so filled with self, we lose sight of caring for others because we think about how it impacts us. And we're selfish, selfish, selfish. Even as Christians, we struggle with our flesh. I know I should do this, but, you know, that's kind of inconvenient. Can I afford to... Do I have the time? I mean, can I afford the gas to go out of the way to, you know, I know there's a need there, but I don't know. 
And we sit there and we value, we go back and forth trying to decide if we should do it. Yet we know God's spoken to our heart. I feel compelled to do it. And I go, okay, I should do this. And like, but the but doesn't come from God. Let me just tell you that. The but does not come from, well, your but came from God, but I'm just telling you, this but didn't come from God. <laughs> That's not in my notes. But bottom line is, God doesn't say, hey, guess what? If he calls us to do it, he's calling us to do it. He's not calling the priest and saying, look, if you don't feel up to it, don't do it. He's saying, look, I'm calling you to do it, but guess what? I'm calling your heart to do it. John 15, verses 12 and 13 says, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love, this is Jesus talking about himself, he says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Talking about the cross, right? Because he says, ye are no longer my servants, you are my friends, right? Right before he ends up dying, ye are my friends. So it was love that drove Jesus to the cross. It was love that kept him on the cross. He could have called down 10,000 angels, man. He could have leveled this planet in an instant, in a thought, in the twinkling of an eye. Everyone that was persecuting him could have been vanished and turned to dust. But yet he hung there and allowed them to mock him and allowed them to spit upon him and allowed them to wag their heads and rail upon him as they made fun of him and they made jokes. So when here he is pinned to the cross, it's not the nails that are holding him there, man. It is love that's holding him there. And that is the only thing that had the power to hold him on that cross. Love is what kept him there. And it was love that caused him to give up his righteous life for unrighteous people. None of us are deserving. None of us. The Bible says, there is none righteous. No, not one. Not one. And no matter how good a person may seem, guess what? Inside, there is wickedness. There is selfishness. Me, me, me. It's in all of us. But yet Jesus looked at us and said, you know what? Even though they're unworthy, even though they don't deserve it, not only am I going to show mercy, which is withhold the judgment that they deserve, but I'm going to come down. And where they should stand before the judge and have judgment placed upon them, I'm going to push them back and step in front of them. And I'll take the judgment. You want to talk about love? Undeserving people like me, who curse God's name, who lived completely in the flesh, who hurt tons of people, who made horrible decisions, who did all those awful things for all those years of my life. Yet God said, you know what? You deserve destruction, David. But because I love you, you step back. And if you'll let me, I'll stand in your place. And when that judgment comes down and the finger's pointed and the payment must be made, they'll place it on me instead of you. Wow. That's an awesome God. That's a loving God. That's the picture of the high priest. So you and I are supposed to be driven by love too. That's supposed to be the driving force of the way we do what we do. Whenever I, when I, when I interact with people, I'm supposed to be focused upon love, not focused upon me. Who's ever been so focused upon yourself that when you're talking to somebody, you don't even hear their name because you're just thinking about your own name? That happens to me all the time. I just met y'all. I don't remember your names already. I forgot. Because uh, I was like, my name's David. My name's David. My name's David. Hi, I'm David. Right? I mean, it's just so crazy. I know my name. Why do I have to tell myself that? I know my name. I've learned it all these years. I should know it. But we're so silly because we're so wrapped up with ourselves that we, for we don't interact with people like we should. 
guess what? You're supposed to be an emissary, an ambassador to this world, an ambassador for Christ. His reaction, his, his interaction with the with, with world was, was love. Love, 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 love. And if I'm an ambassador, I'm an ambassador for, for love. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. Yet I meet up with myself. It's crazy. But yet God still chooses to use us. And it's remarkable that we get to do what we do. And you know what? We're all a work in progress. But praise God that he's willing to work with us. It's supposed to be love that causes us to endure the hardships of serving others. It's not always easy to serve people. There are people that are hard to love. Who's anybody in a way like that? Oh, my goodness. I mean, you're like, oh, man. They grate your nerves or, or they're ungrateful. Oh, that's a hard one, right? You do something, you go out of your way to do something for somebody, and they're like, yeah, what else you got for me? And you're like, oh, I know what I got for you. It's in my pocket, right? We can have that sense, right? But we're supposed to be able to endure these things because we love them. Understand, if someone treats you poorly, guess what? Hurting people, guess what they do? They hurt people, right? They hurt people. And so many times when people lash out at us and they do something to us, it's because they're hurting inside. There's something broken within them that only God can fix. And if we break off the relationship because we're hurt by what they do, the opportunity where those golden, those golden reeds, man, those golden bands could reach their heart, it gets disconnected because guess what you and I do? We disconnect. I'm done. I've done all I'm going to do. I've suffered enough. I'm a martyr. I've done this, I've done that, I've done this, I've done that. And that's all they've done. But guess what? It's not about us. If God puts you in their life for a purpose, and sometimes it's hard to endure it, but guess what? That's what love does. It drives you to endure beyond. So when someone treats you poorly, you can still love them. Because that's what grace is. For by grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not, the, not of works, lest any man should boast. God, it's grace. Grace means to love someone who does not deserve love. And so when you share that love and you keep going and you keep being that compassionate one, guess what? You do become a picture of, of grace. Grace. For by grace will they be saved. By grace they'll see God in you. And you'll be driven by love. Galatians 6 says this, Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ which is to love one another as Christ hath loved us. And then you think about that verse. When he says here back in John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So we think about our love, right? We have our love for our fellow man. But guess what? We're supposed to have love for our Savior, right? It's supposed to be the love that causes us to endure those hardships, yes. But guess what? It's supposed to be the love that we have for him that causes us to give up our own lives. Because your flesh wants to be in charge. Your personal desires want to rule your life. And God tells us to deny ourselves, deny ourselves, deny ourselves, deny ourselves. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. You and I should lay down our life. Is there no better friend in this world than Jesus Christ? Think about it. Loves you when you don't deserve it, does what he does for us, as we do not deserve any of it. Matthew 16, 25 says this, For whosoever will save his life, shall lose it. That means you live this life for you. You lose the real life. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. He says, if you'll give your life for my sake, I will use you in ways you cannot possibly imagine.
and all those things that are in the way that keep me from being able to use you. Guess what? When you die to yourself, they fall away. And all of a sudden, I've got clear access to your heart. And all of a sudden, I can direct your path. And I can guide your heart. And I can speak to you through your word. And I can clear away all these distractions. Because let me tell you, the enemy does not want us to serve God. He wants us to be distracted. But if we will, we can show sacrificial love. Whatever we do to serve others should always be driven by selfless and sacrificial love. Because guess what? It's not the fact that we do it, right? It's how we do it. It's how we do it. Think about this. When you serve people with the wrong heart, you're in reality, you're not serving them. You're in reality serving yourself. So what can be an act, a duty, can be a self-serving thing. 1 Corinthians 13, I'm almost done, I promise. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3 says this, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of, and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. What he's saying is I am just noise. The words that I say, no matter how eloquent they may be, no matter how God-driven they may be, no matter how biblical they may be, if my heart's wrong, then it just becomes noise. Verse 2 says this, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. He says, look, I don't care how much biblical knowledge I have, how much understanding of the Word of God I have. Waste of time, because guess what? You're not doing it with the right heart. I'm far from Him. So he says here, I am nothing. When you see the word charity, it means godly love. Godly love, that means the love of God manifested towards human being. That means God, that means sacrificial love. Verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, I give everything I got to feed the poor. And though I give my body to be burned, I'm willing to be a martyr for God. I'm willing to die on the cross or die on a burn, a burn stake. And have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Here's someone who's going to the nth degree. And if we looked at their life from the outside, that guy, not only did he know God, did he love and he spoke well, and then he suffered persecutions and he went through all these things, and eventually they burned him on a cross. But guess what? We would look from the outside. We'd go, man, he must have been the most godly man in the world. But God says, look, if your heart's not right, then it means absolutely nothing. God's concerned with the heart. You see, it won't just be what the high priest does that God's concerned with but the heart behind it. The high priest will always make sure that he's right with God before he goes and serves. They will cleanse themselves and work upon making sure that when he went to serve God, it was with the right heart, the right mind, the right focus. Right? He wants to be a picture of righteousness in God's presence. And guess what? The same should be true of us. When I serve, right? When it comes to our community, our families, our church, or our God, man, do we, do we serve them with selfless, sacrificial love as a picture of righteousness? Or do we secretly serving ourselves, doing it for us, and displaying an, actually an image of unrighteousness? God has an expectation for us. It's only through humbly coming before God and being fully submitted to Him by faith that we can ever ever be even close to being clothed in righteousness. God wants to use these lives. And we talk about it all the time, the distractions of the world, the impurities of the world, the, the effects of our flesh upon us. And God says, look, I want you to be able to come in my presence and not be afraid. 
I want you to come in my presence with joy in your heart. And I want you to serve people, not for selfish reasons, but because you care. Because if you really care, guess what? God can speak to someone's heart. The night I got saved was because someone cared. Someone cared. And they went out of their way. And the devil tried all kinds of things to stop them. Flat tires, arguments, all kinds of stuff. But they still came, even though we're like an hour and a half late. And they sat on the couch. And because they cared, God changed our life. From lost to saved. Because someone cared. The question is, do we? Do we care? You're given one life. And every day is a gift. What you do with it is up to you. God's told us what to do. Now it's up to us, up to, us to choose to do it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for today. And God, the blessing of your word. Thank you, Lord, for that breastplate of judgment. And God, the picture that we see of our Lord Jesus Christ in all aspects of this high priest. Thank you for the example that you set for us. And Lord, thank you for the heart that you've shown us, God. Not only that you displayed on the cross, and Lord, you displayed through your life and through your word, but God also displayed in this high priest, as you see in Aaron's clothing. And God, we just pray for, us, for each one of us today, that God, to help us, Lord, to deal with our own hearts. Help us, Lord, to, to search our hearts, God, that they might be right with you, that our lives might be able to minister into someone else's Lord, it's so easy to get caught up in us. It's so easy to get caught up in what we're dealing with. And we lose sight of people that are hurting all around us. Help us, Lord Jesus. Help us to have a heart of righteousness, a life of righteousness, God, that can touch someone else. We'll never do it in our own strength, only through you. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed. If you're here today, you say, you know what? If I look at my life, I can't say that I'm projecting or displaying an image of righteousness. I'm struggling with unrighteousness. It's a part of who I am. And there's things I'm accepting in my life right now that I need to remove. I know this. If I was walking before God and I knew I was going to stand before him, I know there's some things I need to deal with. And if that's you, praise God that you're having that realization because that's the first step, recognizing that we need to do it. But then we just simply have to take it to God. Guess what? He's ready to forgive you. He's ready to restore you. He's ready to use you. He's waiting on us. And if you're here today and you say, you know what? I don't know that I have a relationship with God. I don't know. <laughs> because you know what? I don't remember a moment like you talked about where you fell on your knees and you called out to God and he saved you. I was raised in church or I grew up believing. Let me tell you this. The Bible says you must be born again. You went from being lost to being saved and it was a dramatic moment and there was a change in your life. If you're here today and you say, I've never had that change, well, the good news is God loves you right where you are, and he's willing to save you right where you are. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not a matter of a magic prayer. It's not a matter of a ceremony. It is a matter of the heart. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. God is looking directly into your heart, and he loves you right where you are. And he wants to receive you as his child to wipe away all of the sin of your life, to pay the debt that you would pay and give you not only a beautiful relationship with him, but a home in heaven one day. But it's up to us. He will never force us. He's given us free will. If you're online, if you're watching this recorded, wherever you are, overflow, it doesn't matter. It's a matter of you simply choosing to receive the gift of God. Let me tell you this. He is offering it from the cross as we speak to you individually. You have to choose to receive it. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray with our heads bowed and eyes closed. 
You're not going to pray out loud. This is to pray in your heart and in your mind. And you can receive the gift of God right in your seat. Remember, it's not the words of the prayer, but it's going to be the intention of your heart. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, repeat this prayer. I'm going to give you, I'm going to, I'm going to lead you through it, but it's the intention of your heart that God's listening to, not the words. With their heads bowed and eyes closed, repeat after me in your heart and mind if you want to receive Christ as your Savior. He's ready and waiting on you. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I am so sorry for my sin. You love me in spite of myself. I don't understand it, but I'm so thankful. I'm asking you right now to come into my heart. By faith, I'm trusting you to save my soul and to give me a home in heaven. I know you have the power to save me, and I thank you for what you have done in my life. Thank you for saving me today. I ask you, Lord, to help me to live for you and to walk with you. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.